0: Let me start by saying this. In this nation right now, and in our church, and possibly you could say in the church in America right now, there is a lot going on that people respond to differently. I think some people... Maybe, maybe I'll just do a little informal survey. How many of you feel a little bit of anxiety when you look around at our nation, the state of the American church, a little bit of worry, a little bit of trepidation? Okay, all right, good, okay. So it's not just me, all right, okay. And then some people respond to that with different emotional responses. Is that fair to say? It can cause anger. It can cause fear. Some people, it, for them, it causes them to retreat inward. To withdraw. To say, I, I just can't, I can't look at that. Or maybe it doesn't affect them. Some of the wonkiness in our, in our nation right now, in the American church, doesn't affect them, so they just withdraw. Um... We are in the book of Acts, and I think it's timely that we're in the book of Acts. I think the book of Acts is a very relevant text to this place that we're in as a nation, as the American church, as Roots Covenant Church. I think it's very relevant to where we're at, partly because the book of Acts is the story of the development of the church, and we're developing a church But it's also relevant because in the book of Acts, you you can see a very clear contrast between this movement of people who are misfits. Misfits on a mission in the shadow of an empire. That's very evident as you work your way through this book. That you see this Jesus movement of misfits on a mission to the backdrop of the Roman Empire. So, this morning I want us to look at a couple passages from two chapters. And I didn't give give Dura a heads up on what chapters I was going to (laughs) do. But I'm going to look at a couple chapters, passages from a couple chapters, five and six. We've been kind of working our way through sort of chapter by chapter. But I'm going to do a little bit of two chapters this week. I know. Ooh, mix it up. (laughs) So we're going to look at. 5 verses 12 through uh, 32 and 6 verses 1 through 7. And I'm going to need a couple readers. While you're looking that up, I'm going to need a reader for 12 through 20 and a reader for 21 through 32 and then a reader for for 6, 1 through 7. But while you're looking that up, a little bit of a program note. uh, Huge thanks to Emily for teaching last week on chapter 4. And we have exciting new speakers coming up. L- next week is Durr is up. We love, here, here at Roots, we love to hear from a multiplicity of voices. I think that's, that's a huge part of who we are. It's being multi-voiced. And so I'm really excited that Durr uh, agreed to teach next week. And then after that, Andrea. For our, our first, I mean, our first time as a, as a replant, um, you know, Andrea's going to teach and I'm excited about that. But I don't want them to feel like they have to follow like, linearly, chapter by chapter. You feel free to jump around. So who has chapter 5, verses 12 through 20, just the first reading? I have. Uh, can you read super loud?
1: I can. All right. I, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used, used to meet together in Solomon's colony. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by them. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered, also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them, at them Then the high priest and all his associates. Who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the, in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. One more verse. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. I
0: like, I like that. Tell them about this new life. Isn't that great? That's a great line. Tell them about this new life. Alright, who's got 21 through 32?
2: And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council. All all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them uh, brought. But when the officers came they did not find them in prison so they returned and reported we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the door but when we opened them we found no one inside now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words they were greatly perplexed about them wondering what this would come to and someone came and told them look the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they sent them before the council, and and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in in this name, yet yet uh, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those uh, whom obey him.
0: Great, thank you. Can someone read chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, loudly.
3: In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said... It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and four people To these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And so the word of God spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient
0: to the faith. Great. Thank you. So Luke is the author of the book of Acts. And if you know anything about Luke he's also a companion a traveling companion of Paul during his missionary journeys. He's a doctor And he's the author of the gospel, according to Luke. This is kind of a second volume of of Luke's gospel. And there's something genius about the way that Luke writes. There's a lot of things that are genius about the way that Luke's writing. But one thing that Luke has a, a knack of doing is he has a knack of juxtaposing two stories against each other which teach you something. Here's an example. In Luke 8, Luke Juxtaposes the story of the healing of Jairus' daughter, who was a uh, temple uh, synagogue leader, with the healing of the woman with the issue of blood. These would have been very different kinds of women. One would have been a very respected member of the community, Jairus' daughter. And one would have been a total social outcast someone with a perpetual disease that caused them to be separated from the rest of the people. Yet, what what Luke does is he knits those two stories together with the the title, Daughter. Jesus says, this woman too is a daughter of Abraham. And he, he uses that to show you something, that Jesus is doing something different. And like that, I think chapters 5 and 6 show us something that Luke is trying to tell us. I think that this juxtaposition of chapter 5 and 6, I call it the prophet and the wonk. I'm pretty proud of that. <laughs> the prophet and the wonk. Chapter 5 is the prophet chapter. I got excited when I when I when I when I when I found out that this was going to be in our text this week, I was like, wow, this is timely. Isn't this timely? I mean, I just feel like this is the chapter we need to be in right now in our country. Why? Because there are some laws in this country right now that some people are appealing to and they're saying, "That's the law. You've got to obey the law." And then there's these other communities who are saying Yeah, but what is God's law? Is there a higher law that we should be appealing to? Is there a moral imperative that we should be thinking about? This week, a preacher, a pastor of a large church, said, yeah, Jesus may have been a refugee, but he never broke the law. Because if he had broke the law, he couldn't be our Messiah. Yeah, if if your brow is furrowed like mine, you're going, what, what? The The logic is convoluted there. Here in our text today, we have a very clear instance of the apostles saying, we answer to a higher law. Man makes laws, but we don't always agree with man's laws. Right? I don't don't know if I should have to tell you this, but there was a time not so long ago in this country where the law of the land was racial segregation. That's not ancient history. Right? I mean, go down in the South today. Some of the vestiges of Jim Crow are still there. It wasn't that long ago in this country when slavery was the law of the land. And there were some Christians that said, no, we appeal to a higher law, the law of God. So, how do we get mixed up? How do we get so mixed up? How do we start becoming law and order Christians? <laughs> Appealing to Romans 13, like it trumps Revelation 13. Look it up. <laughs> This is the prophet chapter. And, I, and I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to have, here's a moment of vulnerability. I love this chapter. This is me. I have a prophet streak. When I, when I see headlines, sometimes I see the headlines, they make my blood boil. And I, want to, and I want to scream. I want to go, No! God's law is higher than man's law! And I feel a righteous indignation. I feel feel a right to this indignation. But I have to step back and say, okay, that's a very privileged position. It's easy for me to fall into the trap of lobbing bombs in the role of a prophet and not being part of a solution. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's very easy to stand on the outside of something and critique it. And that's often been me. That's often been what I have done. I've said, this whole thing, tear it down. That's easy to do if you're not in the thing. If if it's not going to fall on you, you can stand outside of something and lob bombs at it. Easy to do. What I think Luke is doing is he's juxtaposing right up next to each other, the prophet and the wonk. Because right after this story of, we can call it civil disobedience, right after this story of civil disobedience, do they go and just rail against the Sanhedrin? There's no sign of that. Instead, Luke goes right into this story of administrative policy? What? This seems like mundane family skirmish that gets solved by a delegation of authority by the creation of a new role to distribute food do you see the juxtaposition there? all of a sudden Luke is like yeah yeah the apostles stood up to the Sanhedrin they spoke truth to power and then they went home and they, and they created jobs <laughs> they created ministry teams in the church here's what this says to me what this says to me is that not only do we need to speak truth to power and we need to not only do we need to call to account the powers that be when they are, when they are wrong and we do need to do that not only do we need to do that We also need to embody the alternative. We need to be the solution that we want to see. In microcosm, perhaps. Maybe we just embody a little bit of what we want to see at a broader scale. But if the apostles can't get it right, how do they expect all of Israel to get it right? The apostles here are showing... We want to embody the solution to the injustice that we see. People are being mistreated in society at large. We're going to treat them right in our community. And I would wager to say, this is the most prophetic thing we can do. Throughout the book of Acts, you're going to see that Roman officials, Jewish leaders are absolutely perplexed by the church. They just can't figure this weird group of people out. Why do they do what they do? Why are they so weird? Why do they act like this? The apostles and Jesus didn't get executed by the state because they had a very deep piety. And they went home and they prayed and they sang songs They were executed because they were a threat. And the threat that they posed to the system was that they embodied an alternative. You could choose Rome, or you could choose the church. That's a threat. And Rome said, we don't want that. We don't want there to be any alternative to our narrative. Our narrative is dominant. It's the only game in town. If there's another game in town, we squash it. That's why being the church is prophetic. This week, um, Rachel Held Evans wrote a really powerful piece for the Washington Post, I thought. It was a different take on scripture. Some people have been saying that scripture is a story about people obeying rules. <laughs> That's what some people have been saying. It's all about people following the law. Rachel Evans is like, no, I don't think so. It's like, when I read the Bible, I see a story about subversive communities, minority communities subverting huge empires Persia, Babylon, Rome. She says, the Bible is resistance literature. I like that take, I think that's true. And Durr wrote an excellent piece this past week. What was the name of that outlet? Public faith, public right. I shared it on my wall. You can you can get you can see it on my wall. I love what Durr said. Durr said that Christians embody a third way between being apolitical and being partisan. That is true as true can be. To be a follower of Jesus means that we are inherently political. Why? Because we care about people. If you care about how people are treated in society, you are political. That's political. We are not apolitical. We don't plug our ears and say, doesn't bother me. But we are not partisan. We are not co-opted by any philosophy or any party. We We embody a different politics. A politics of the kingdom. A politics of Jesus. So, Here's what I think is our takeaway. Our tendency is to project our callings individually, maybe as a church. We tend to project our callings onto others, our giftings onto others. And say, I feel called to do this. Everyone should do this. But we have to recognize that there are different roles in the body of Christ. Some of us are going to be prophetic. Some of us are going to speak truth to power. We need to do that. Some of us are going to be wonks. We're going to be working on the, the mundane policy of the church. How to do the thing that we're called to do. The details. We need to give each other grace and say we need every part of the body. We need those prophetic voices like Rachel Evans. We need Durr to write that piece. We need people who are uh, working on ministry teams. Who's gonna welcome people at the door? Who's gonna sing songs? (laughs) We need wonks in the church, church wonks. That's important too. Let's Let's not be all feet or all hands. Let's be a body that recognizes the diversity of our gifts and callings. And then second thing I think is our takeaway is that we need to recognize that being the church is a powerful witness to the to the powers that be. Let me give you just two examples. When I was uh, still a teenager, I visited a church in Chicago. Um, pastor Choco De Jesus, which is a m- marvelous name, wonderful name. I wish my name was Choco De Jesus. Um, Choco pastor a church called New Covenant in Humboldt Park. Humboldt Park, if you don't know, is infamous for gang violence in Chicago. It's like one of the most violent parks in Chicago, right? When Choco assumed leadership of a Pentecostal church in that neighborhood, it was failing. This church was falling apart, people were leaving in droves, leaving for the suburbs, getting out of Humboldt Park. And Choco started to do something that was innovative for his time in the 90s. It was youth development. He just focused on the kids in the neighborhood. Programs, jobs, just anything he could do to develop the youth. You probably know Choco from AG district stuff? Yeah, he was in the AG district. So I went there to do some youth development work with Choco, and here's what I noticed. What I noticed is, when he got the youth of that neighborhood, the city started paying attention. The city started going, how are you doing this? We couldn't do this. We have no clue how to reach these youth. But Choco knew how to reach the youth. And by by." by being the church just caring about these teenagers the city said we want to learn from you isn't that powerful the city of Chicago said Choco teach us teach us how to reach these young people I got another example my friend Larry Kim in Cambridge Massachusetts Cambridge Massachusetts is so liberal that I have a friend that calls it the People's Republic of Cambridge (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm dead serious that's what he calls it and Cambridge is famous for its diversity. It's incredibly diverse. It's like a, like a UN type city. People from all over the world come to Cambridge. Well, just because all kinds of people live nearby each other doesn't mean they know how to be good neighbors, right? Well, Larry's church is a multi-ethnic church. It's a covenant church. And Larry's church has found a way to, to Inform people into good neighbors, to teach people how to love one another across cultural lines. And you know what happened? Can you guess what happened? The city took notice. And the city came to Larry and said, teach us how to do this work. The city of Cambridge asking a small multi-ethnic church, how do you do it? How do you do it? Isn't that amazing? One of the most prophetic acts we can do is embody the reality that we want to see at a broader scale. Do you want to see justice at a broader scale? I do. Let's embody that here. Do you want to see racial harmony, racial cross-cultural love and sharing at a broader level? I do. Let's do it here. And as we grow, and as we reach into neighborhoods, the powers that be will take notice. Now, they may view us as a threat, We may have to say, we obey God's law, not man's law. We may have to be like the apostles. But more likely than not, they'll say, actually, that's what we want too. Can you teach us? And we could have that kind of impact on our neighborhoods. I think the first step of this is we have to work together to, to do this refresh thing right. The first step of this refresh is we need a team of 30 missional adults. We're at 25 as of this morning so uh, we're almost there and our goal was to do that by like August so we're on track to to accomplish phase one phase two is we need to develop those ministry teams we need some wonks we need some church wonks people who will step up and say I care about the details of doing this microcosm of justice a shalom society on this level we need that in phase two And then phase three is, we need to show that to our neighbors. We need to show our neighbors that we are the alternative that people are looking for.